Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. All right, so I'm going to start out by talking about what I call the neuroskeptical case against freedom of the will. Okay. Um, and though I'm ultimately going to defend freedom in some sense, you're going to find I don't, I don't exactly disagree with this neuroskeptical case. So, All right, by neuroskeptic, I mean someone who denies that we have freedom of the will based on the supposed implications of neuroscientific findings. In recent years, there have been no small number of neuroskeptics addressing both academic and popular audiences. Neuroscientific findings gathered over the last few decades do seemingly provide much stronger support for neuroskepticism than one might think. These findings do not merely point to what, for many of us, are the expected neurophysiological underpinnings of our free will perceptions, but seem to give us good reason to conclude that these experiences have nothing to do with the causation of our activities. Or at least that is how these findings have been frequently interpreted. That is, we have scientific reasons to doubt whether conscious deliberation is in fact a causal antecedent of our actions. In 1964, two German scientists, uh, Hans uh, Helmut uh, Kornhuber and Luther Dicke, set out to investigate the degree to which the brain is actively involved in decision-making processes. To that end, they, con they conducted an experiment in which human subjects were asked to tap with one finger at whatever interval they chose while any changes in the level of brain activity were recorded. Dickey and Kornhuber found that there was indeed a spike uh, in brain activity leading up to the subject's finger tapping. They called this increased activity in the subject's brains the readiness potential, as they interpreted it as the nervous system's preparation to bring about an action. The discovery of the readiness potential was certainly a big deal scientifically, as it showed that the brain really does have a direct role in bringing about an action. And Kornhuber and Dickey's experiments uh, hinted at some interesting philosophical questions too. Nevertheless, their discovery of the readiness potential was not initially uh, proposed as a reason to call the notion of free will into doubt, as the results were perfectly consistent with the proposal that an antecedent act of will is the cause of the readiness potential. Later experiments along these lines by Benjamin Liebet, however, do seemingly raise just such a specter. Liebet was, was intrigued by the fact that there's a lag between the gathering of the readiness potential and the actual downstream movement. It is not a big gap, but in neurological terms, where things are measured by the speed of electricity, that is, there, it is a significant interval. Why is there a substantial gap in the time between the decision to act and the subsequent activity? Liebet looked into this by varying Kornhuber and Dickey's experiment uh, just a bit. He had the human subjects use a sort of clock, 
This is a gross simplification, by the way. Let's just, you know, he had them use a clock to record when they consciously decided to move their finger while their brains were simultaneously being monitored for the onset of the readiness potential. The incredible result Liebet found was that the subject's conscious sense of their decision occurred after the buildup of the readiness potential. In other words, it seems that Liebet found that the brain has already decided to perform the action before the subject's conscious sense of having made the decision. The conscious part of the decision seems to be after the fact, so it is difficult to see how it can play any determining role in what will, what will eventually happen. The experience of free will, as it were, is just as much an effect of the realization of the readiness potential as the subsequent physical movements. Remember the, the shared assumption of the contemporary free will debate. Ethically significant action must be caused by the agent's exercise of will. Where, where an exercise of the will is antecedently occurring, a resolution to deliberation among the available options. Libertarians, hard determinists, and compatibilists, whatever their other disagreements, all agree that the antecedent conscious deliberation is a necessary condition for ethically significant actions. Because such doings must, in one sense or another, be free. And free actions must be caused by the, by the conscious will. Liebig's experiment, however, seems to show the conscious act of willing is not antecedent to the readiness potential. It actually comes after. And it is therefore not the cause of the action. The threat to freedom and moral agency does not come from the plausibility of determinism or the implausibility of compatibilism or libertarian or what have you. Rather, the problem is, the, is that free will does not seem to do any significant work in causing our activities. All that is done before any conscious act of will. All the real work seems to be done by the neurological activity, which is itself temporally antecedent to our supposed acts of will. Okay. There's no small amount of properly scientific and along with it philosophical controversy about these experiments and their interpretation. Serious questions have been raised regarding whether they really do support the philosophical conclusions neuroskeptics infer from them on scientific grounds. I will not wade into those scientific waters here. Uh, but not, not because I doubt there is anything to worry about in that vicinity. Uh, I am nevertheless happy to concede that the Liebet style uh, scientists and the neuroskeptical philosophers interpreting their results have in fact shown that their subjects were not acting freely or in any ethically significant way. I do not find this terribly troubling because, as I shall argue below, ethical agency worth having has very little to do with the sorts of doings that Liebet and the other experiments one that have subsequently followed uh, actually address. In fact, I believe Leavitt-style experiments do the proponent of bona fide capacities for ethically significant actions on the part of human beings a service by disabusing us, finally, of a wrong-headed way of framing our understanding of what we are doing when we act. Okay, so what do I mean by an ethically significant action? There are three very important facts about the neuroskeptical case that we need to focus on in order to understand the philosophical implications of the scientific evidence they appeal to. The actions, and I am reluctant to even call them actions, the subjects perform in the Leibniz-style experiments are arbitrary, they're insignificant, and they're episodic. By arbitrary, I mean the performances in the Leibniz-style experiments are not what recent philosophers call reason-sensitive. They are not the doings that can be rationally justified. 
When asked to tap your finger at any interval of your choosing, without being given any further end, uh, this interval tapping might serve, your decision for one interval over another is not something which you can give a reason. Supposing Cormac were a subject in a Liebitz-style experiment. When asked why he tapped his finger at any given moment, as opposed to any other moment in the infinity of perfectly good moments at which he might have tapped, there is no reason he could give for it. He could only cite a brute fact. That's just what I chose to do. Maybe Cormac could, could give something like, I want to be a good experimental participant, or some such to explain why he is doing any finger tapping at all. Nevertheless, notice that the Liebet experiment is not aimed at rooting out the antecedent causes of Cormac's finger tapping in general, uh, but his finger tapping at one interval instead of all the other possibilities. For that explanation, it would seem Cormac could only say, well, that's just what I happen to decide. Notice, however, that I choose it might be a cause of acting, but it's not a reason for acting. If I were to ask Cormac, why did you leave uh, for swim practice early today? And he replied, because I chose to leave early today, I would point out to him that he really has not answered my question. Uh, of course he chose to do so. That is why I'm asking him why he left early. Uh, if he had not decided the matter, it would not be, it would, it would, I would not be asking him for an explanation. What I wanted to know is why he did it, not the causal process that led up to or finalized the decision. I wanted to know why he did it, uh, pardon me. Typically, a reason for acting is an end that the agent aims to achieve by such an action. If Cormac were to answer my question with, so that I could get some extra laps in for my breaststroke, or so I could goof around in the pool with the other guys, uh, whatever I might think about the relative worth of these different justifications for his action, either of these replies provides an intelligible reason for acting. Notice that tapping your finger at some random interval is not reason sensitive in this way. The performance is arbitrary in that it serves no end and an agent acting in such a way can offer no meaningful justification. Notice that a reason for acting is typically an end that would plausibly justify such an action which is to say that reasons for acting are typically taken as goods the agent expects or hopes will be brought about by such acting. This emphasis on the notion of reasons as goods highlights the insignificance of the performances of the subjects in the Leibniz-style experiments. I take it that, that only ends that can be seen as being significant to us are intelligible explanations of actions. To say that I acted to achieve some end implies that such an end is good to me. As Aristotle uh, opens what is likely the most historically influential discussion of ethically significant action in the Western tradition, quote, every action and deliverance uh, and deliberative choice seeks some good, end quote. Certainly a condition of something being a good to me is that it is something I care about or contributes, something I, contributes to something I care about. In other words, when I ask Cormac, why did you do that? I am looking for his reasons, not merely the causes for his actions. And, and only ends of acting that have significance to him would serve as a plausible answer to the question so that I could get, uh, would serve as a plausible answer to the question. So that I could get some extra laps in for my breaststroke or so I could goof around in the pool with the other guys serve as reasons for Cormac's early departure because we can understand these states of affairs as goods or contributing to goods he is likely to care about, becoming a better swimmer or having fun with his buddies. If Cormac replied to my query about his early departure by saying, well, I just wanted uh, the minute hand on the clock to point to the six instead of the nine, uh, 
as I walked through the door, I would need some broader explanation as to why the position of the minute hand could possibly matter to him enough to justify some particular course of action before I could see that as part of, of an actual explanation for his early departure. A correct follow-up to such a question would be the further question, how can you possibly care about that? In short, reason-sensitive's doings matter or have significance to the agents who perform them in virtue of the goods they serve. An end the agent simply does not care about is not really why that agent performs such an action, or at least it leaves the real justification of such an action unknown. Notice that in the Leibitz-style experiments, the finger-tapping performances of the subjects are quite insignificant to them. It is hard to believe that any subject cared about uh, which moment she tapped her finger as opposed to any other the infinity of possible moments she might have tapped. If similar exercises of finger tapping were involved in, in Olympic events uh, in digital dexterity, there would be a ready-to-hand ready explanation. Nevertheless, under the experimental conditions, Nothing is at stake in which arbitrary chosen moment you tap your finger, and as such, no significant reasons explanation can be given for these movements. Reason giving is a normative affair, and norms presuppose a level of concern about what they govern. Finally, the performances in the Leibniz-style experiments are episodic, in the sense that the decision leading up to them takes place at a discrete clockable moment. That is, we are dealing with events that can be shown to have occurred at a specific time, or at least during a definite hard-edged interval of time. Subjects in the Leibniz-style experiments were clocked at the exact time at which they thought they consciously made the decision to tap their finger, or nearly so. Likewise, the readiness potential was detected at a definite time. Both the conscious perception of the decision and the neurophysiological activity were timed down to the fraction of a second. It is only because the decision to act in these cases can be precisely characterized as a discrete episode that we are concerned with which event, the conscious episode or the neurophysiological episode, comes first. Since the decision to tap your finger arbitrarily and insignificantly is a discrete episode, it makes sense uh, for its cause among other antecedent, to look for its cause among other antecedent discrete episodes. A necessary, necessary condition of one discrete episode explaining another is that the one doing the causing comes first in time, or at least at the same time. For this reason, the Leibniz-style experiment takes the conscious episode and the neurophysiological episode in a sort of competition for who goes first, wherein the winner is the real decision responsible for the subsequent finger tapping. Now, I am not concerned whether Leibniz-style experiments show that conscious volitions are in fact epiphenomenal in cases of arbitrary, insignificant, and episodic decisions to act. In fact, I would expect that organisms, even rational and reflective organisms like us, would have a mechanism wherein they could determine actions in an arbitrary way on a split second's notice. There's not a lot of time for neat reason sensitivity when the saber-toothed tiger shows up on the prehistoric plains. It is better to do something rather than nothing in such a situation. Even running in an arbitrarily chosen direction ups your chances for not getting eaten uh, better than, re than remaining stationary while wrought with indecision. At least you might distract the predator from your cherished kin uh, who were lucky enough to pick a safer direction of retreat. In more recent times, we have learned to hedge against the often ill consequences of making arbitrary snap decisions in the face of immediate crises by offloading information into our environment. For example, emergency exit signs and the like. 
but we should expect that we do have a just do something anything mechanism in our cognitive toolbox. It is quite plausible that the Leibniz style experiments have uncovered the neuro neurophysiological underpinnings of just such a cognitive structure. True that may be, but how relevant is that to the sort of decision making, uh, is that sort of decision making to ethically significant actions? Take for example, my decision to marry my wife. Was that decision arbitrary? Hardly. I could cite many reasons rendering that course of action perfectly rational, even impeccably justified. A decision to marry a particular person is certainly something we would expect to be reason sensitive in this way. This decision had the highest significance to me because it was a consequence of, and partly constituent of, my commitment to a certain form of life. We see this kind of decision as important or grave because it plays such a life-defining role. A decision gains ethical significance in part due to the fact that it reflects a commitment to a particular vision of what counts as a good life. Ethically significant actions aim at goods that matter to us because of their role in what we take uh, the point of our lives to be. Such actions either define our notions of the good life, because I have married you, I thereby commit myself to a host of other activities so broad as to define a kind of life I will hereby live, or they are important consequences of our prior existential commitments. Because I have broad commitments to a certain form of life, I am now committing to marrying you. And in most cases, I expect our ethically significant actions are done out of a mix of these two directions of commitment. That is to say, such decisions stand out to us as having ethical significance. Notice that all of this is to say, not surprisingly, given our discussions in, uh, in, in, what, in the foregoing, that the ability to perform ethically significant actions presupposes that the agent occupies a certain, uh, in a, occupies a place in a certain logical space of reasons. That is, ethically significant actions are those doings for which we can give reasons, which, which have a significance to us, and the giving and taking of meaningful significant reasons is to participate in a broad set of emotional, historical, and communal relations, along with possessing a great array of epistemic and practical skills. The kinds of doings asked of the subjects in the Leibniz-style experiments are not movements in such a logical space. Uh, they don't involve historical, emotional, and practical commitments and skills. So they shed no light for good or ill on the ethically significant decisions that really define our lives. In other words, these, experiments, these, these experimental results are irrelevant to our status as beings capable of ethically, ethically significant decision-making of the highest value. Further, notice that the decision to marry was not episodic. There is no one clockable moment at which I can say I made the decision through a conscious act of will, or at least I am not aware of when such moment occurred, nor was I when it supposedly did occur. In such decisions, there's rarely if ever that eureka moment when one decides all at once to go forward with some course of action. It is often much more like finding oneself in a state of having resolved to take such a course. There's, there was no specific day in time in the winter of the year 2000 at which I decided to marry. Though I know sometime in that vicinity I crossed some sort of threshold. No doubt there were many millions of discrete mental and physical events whirling around in my vicinity during those months. Nevertheless, as the addition of no one drop of rainfall really marks the end of a drought, no one, no one of the, those episodes amounted to my making the decision. 
there is a fact of the matter, all things being equal, as to whether there was a drought last summer in western Kansas, but is inherently vague when, spe when specified down to the drop what quantity of water would have remedied the situation. It is odd to think that a, a single milliliter of water marks the difference, but that has no bearing on whether there really is or is not a drought. Likewise, it might be inherently vague as to when I make a certain decision, but that does not call into doubt what I made, that I did indeed make the decision. Indeed, I think if you reflect on most of the really important decisions you have made in your life, the ones with the greatest ethical significance, the resolutions that have done the most to define uh, or to confirm who you are, you will mostly find that there was no discrete moment of decision, but a sort of finding oneself in a commitment after an indeterminate process of deliberation. In my experience, one usually admits to himself uh, what he has already seemingly resolved to do. Maybe there are such ethically significant decisions occurring at discrete moments, and I'm not quite sure how we could sort that question out, but my point is only that prior temporal discreteness is not a necessary condition for ethically significant action. All right. The temporal ambiguity of ethically significant uh, decision-making, or at least some of it, brings us to the final salient feature of morally significant actions. Ethically significant actions, by definition, are reason-sensitive. But notice they are often, maybe most often, only sensitive to reasons retrospectively. In other words, often the reason for taking some of the most important actions in my life, those that most define my commitment to a conception of the good life, are not entirely transparent to me while I'm making uh, th those decisions or performing those actions. The full reasons for an action, the significant goods that fully justify it, might only be available to us consciously after the fact, after we have performed the action uh, that our reasons can now be seen as justifying. Take the relatively mundane example of performing explicit speech acts, literally speaking sentences. I will promise I will. Uh, need, uh, I need not explicitly take up decisions about all the words I utter in, in such sentences in order, to give the, in order to give them a significance, even though I'm committed to their implications. After the fact, I can tell you why I have said what I have said, but my commitment to a certain speech act does not require that I have reflected on it root and branch ahead of time, especially down to its component parts. Thus, we can, re we, we can be responsible for something uh, maybe even something of the highest ethical significance, but our reasons committing to us to this re responsibility might only be explicit to us retrospectively upon reflection. Indeed, it seems perfectly coherent uh, for us to take our decisions from others, say wise counsel from a trusted friend, even when uh, what makes those considerations good reasons is not entirely transparent to us. In such cases, it is reasonable to accept full responsibility for the actions that are justified by these currently opaque reasons. That, however, means uh, the reasons justifying my actions, the doings for which I am most fully responsible, may be beyond my grasp as reasons when I actually perform those actions. My reasons are mine because they are features of the world I occupy in virtue of my participation in the common human project of justifying our lives not because they are always internally explicit to me. Once again, my decision to marry is just such a decision. Though that decision is perfectly justified by the available reasons, and I can now understand those reasons as justifying that decision, 
These very same reasons were not entirely transparent to me in the winter of the year 2000 when I found myself in resolution to marry. In fact, though uh, they were maybe quite opaque to me then, two decades later, they are far clearer to me. Indeed, I suspect, God willing, those reasons will be even clearer to me in two more decades. Like any other movement in a meaningful world, the reasons for my decision to marry were not strictly internal to me, but had much to do with my occupying a certain place in history, a natural history, institutional history, and the history of the particularities of my lives and the lives of others with whom I share attachments. Making those reasons explicit has been a 20-year-long project of living a certain form of life with another person, which is still open-ended. At this late date, I can make many of the reasons for my, mar my marital commitment explicit, even though I doubt I was consciously aware of them 20 years ago. But that is not to say that those reasons were not there in the world as I was thrown into and took responsibility for by making uh, that decision two decades ago. In fact, uh, that I can cite such reasons retrospectively is some reason to conclude that they were indeed operative even back then. As Alistair McIntyre puts it, it is because any exercise of the power to reflect on our reasons for action presupposes that we already had such reasons which, were, which we can re reflect upon uh, by our prior actions. End quote. Bob the Chameleon's uh, reasons for the particularities of his morning hunt were there operating for him even though he was not reflecting on them, nor will he ever do so. He's not capable of it, but they were still his reasons. Thus, I, I do not need to reflect on something for it to be the reason for my acting. Like Bob the Chameleon, the reasons for many of my doings, even some of my most important doings, are often offloaded onto the world in which I participate. The point uh, in all this is that many of our most significant decisions, the sorts of decisions we are raising our children to be able to make, are justified by reasons that may not explicitly be available to us until well after the fact. In short, reason sensitivity, in the reflectively significant sense, is mostly retrospective. As a rational animal, I should be on the hunt to make my reasons explicit. But that is mostly done uh, looking back on what I have already done, uh, when I know, now know better uh, what, I was up, what I was really up to. My reasons for marrying were partly carried for me by my participation in a certain family, education, church, etc. But those were my reasons uh, because those institutions were constitutive of the form of life I live, though at the time, very little of all of that explicitly crossed my mind. We may then uh, conclude that ethically significant actions are not arbitrary. Uh, are, pardon me. Ethically significant actions are non-arbitrary, meaningfully significant, non-episodic, and retrospectively justified. Notice that the sorts of doings considered by the Leibniz-style experiments are precisely the contrary of such actions. They are arbitrary, insignificant, episodic, and wanting for antecedent justification. The doings of these experimental subjects just are not the sorts of doings at all relevant to our status as moral agents. This boils down to a classic apples versus oranges confusion. Certainly Liebet and those who follow in his train may well show that in cases of randomly chosen finger tappings, or trivial situations in which we can be tricked into thinking we decided something we didn't, we are not acting as bona fide ethical agents. But nobody should have thought we would be doing, we, we would be so acting in those cases in the first place. 
Leibniz experiments do not put any significant good in the breach regarding the subject's decisions, which means that whatever he shows, it has nothing to do with ethically significant actions, nor does it pose any threat to a worthy notion of freedom. Okay. So here's how I think about freedom, then. what I call it, threefold responsibility. Thus far, uh, I have attempted to motivate a certain view of the grounds for ethically significant action. Integral to this view is the claim that what makes an action ethically, ethically significant is not whether it has been efficiently caused by some sort of uh, psychological mechanism internal to the agent independently of outside influences. I am not denying that freedom in this sense is possible or that it isn't a necessary condition for some kinds of actions. Rather, I simply see those worries as beside the point of what is most important for securing our self-understanding as beings capable of ethical agency. My concern is the, is, is the emphasis on the sort of condition for ethical, ethically significant action that disposes, that disposes us to miss what is cardinally important in our lives. Whether or not our wills operate as independent, efficient causes makes little difference for how we raise our children, train our future colleagues, or plan our lives in del deliberation with our neighbors. Rather, an ethically significant action is a performance that has a special sort of relationship to a form of life. Specifically, an ethically significant action is justified by a commitment to a certain set of goods that together constitute the good life, or to something the doing of which commits one to such a view of what really matters. Ethically significant actions are those doings for which one can give reasons, wherein reasons are justifications in terms of ultimate goods of concern, acting in accord with the vision of what matters in life. The, the perceptive uh, uh, listener will, will have already noted that I'm suggesting we worry less about whether something pushes us from behind and instead uh, wonder uh, about what exactly pulls us forward in a classically final cause sort of manner. What we want for our children, spouses, colleagues, friends, and ourselves is that we be motivated by certain goods that constitute our shared form of the good life. I also tried to show you how our relationship to these reasons for our ethically significant actions is often, maybe and in many of, of the really most important cases, only retrospectively accessible. We frequently piggyback for our reasons on the reasons exited in our world. That is, when I, uh, when I am doing the things that most express or most constitute the sort of life to which I am committed, the connection between those actions and their ultimate reasons is quite often not entirely transparent to me. Indeed, even the goods uh, that compose the form of life uh, we are thrown into are often not entirely within our ken when we most need to decide in favor of them. Until we achieve a certain station in life when retrospective reflection is possible, our reasons for acting are mostly carried by our participation in histories and institutions we have inherited. Because I am an organic product of a natural history, a member of a family, an inheritor of a language and a culture, uh, etc., certain reasons uh, are my reasons for acting, even though I might as yet have failed to make those reasons explicit to myself or anyone else. And maybe I will never be able to do so entirely, sort of our project. Throughout much of our lives, we depend on others, both particular others with whom we share bonds of friendship and institutional others, providing context within which those bonds of friendship may be established, who, who have gone before us or along with us to provide the reasons for some of our most important actions. I take it that this is part of what Aristotle has in mind when he famously claims uh, that a truly self-sufficient person must be either a beast or a god, but it's not one of us. 
Humans, however, are not mere robots or unreflective beasts. We can make our reasons explicit. We can, upon reflection, decide that our reasons for acting were not particularly good reasons for acting, and the actions that followed on them were subsequently not the right things to have done. We can amend our long-term dispositions for action based on those reflections, though only with a great deal of effort. We can further subject our inherited form of life to critical reflection, and even conclude that it is flawed and possibly requiring substantial revision or even wholesale rejection. Rational conversion is a real possibility. We humans are unique in that we are capable of reflective self-criticism of both our particular actions and the ways of life we suppose to justify them. The process of becoming capable of this sort of self-criticism uh, is, is ethical education in the most important sense, and it culminates, even if never fully completed, completed in practical wisdom. Our achievement of wisdom will, for the most part, come late in life, a skill mostly exercised retrospectively, while looking back upon our own ethically significant decisions and providing reasons on behalf of our juniors uh, who are now to set, set to walk similar paths. Once again, I take it that this Monday morning quarterbacking phenomenon in our exercise of practical wisdom is part of what Aristotle had in mind when he claimed that happiness only comes from the perspective of one's deathbed. Certainly, uh, uh, we have to see how things wrap up ultimately for our projects before we can deem ourselves happy. But we also do not really know how to evaluate those very projects until we have been made wise by carrying them out. Notice that the wise person is someone who is able to take responsibility for both her actions justified by her form of life and that form of life itself. Since we are capable of self-reflective criticism, we have a sort of ownership of our actions. The wise person sits on her deathbed and looks back over her life and can say, honestly, I understand why all that has been done and for good or will, I accept, good or ill, I accept responsibility for it. All of this is to say, that we, that we are free beings. I see freedom in this sense as a threefold responsibility. First, we are able uh, explicitly to connect our actions and the goods that constitute our form of life and that would hopefully justify them. Secondly, those goods really do constitute a worthy form of life. And finally, those goods really are our reasons for acting. In other words, a free person is someone who has entered into the logical space of reasons a person who can give legitimate and authentic justifications for her sayings and doings. Someone who satisfies these conditions has moved from being a default participant in a biological and cultural history to someone who can give explicit justifications for those activities in terms of real goods enshrined as, as mattering uh, to those who live in that way. That is, freedom is to be an independent participant in the project of justifying our lives with others. The important contrast to highlight here is between activity and passivity. The fully initi initiated denizen of the logical space of reasons does not piggyback on the reasons of others, but comes to take active responsibility for her actions by offering sincere justifications. The free person has reached a point of maturity by moving beyond a passive role of accepting the implicit justifications on offer from her uh, form of life. And to, act, and, and to an active role of reflectively and critically making those reasons explicit. Part and parcel of this movement from passivity to activity is a willingness to revise one's activities where justifications are found wanting. Surely any bona fide denizen of the logical space of reasons takes reasons to be normative in the sense 
that the presence or absence of justifications has consequences for practical commitments. Aristotle defines happiness in, a, in similar terms as I am uh, framing the notion of freedom. To quote Aristotle, the function of the human being is activity of the soul in accord with reason or not without reason. And the function of a sort of thing, we say, is the same in kind as the function of an excellent thing of that sort. And a human being's function is supposed to be a sort of living. And this living is supposed to be activity of the soul and actions that involve reason. And it is just, it is characteristic of an excellent man to do these well and nobly, end quote. That is, the best sort of life, the life that we hope our children will live, is one that is not lived by accident. Come what may, a life lived uh, for which one can give reasons, and not just any reasons, but good reasons, is the best sort of life. For Aristotle, all things being equal, it is better to be good than it is to be lucky. Uh, we begin by piggybacking on the reasons in our form of life, and hopefully we will be lucky in will we be lucky enough uh, in the reception of good reasons from this form of life. But the ideal is to be able to take those reasons up explicitly, to criticize them. Whether one thinks that operation in the space of reasons is sufficient for happiness, and Aristotle himself believes it must be supplemented by external goods, certainly one can see that living a life that can be justified is integral to the human ideal. Notice then that freedom, as I have construed it as a sort of responsibility for one's reasons, is likewise central to any plausible accounting for human happiness. The first condition for freedom is a sort of responsibility uh, internal to one's form of life. For Cormac to give explicit justifications of this sort, the good he cites must actually be the goods of his form of life, and they must be actually connected uh, to the actions in an appropriate way. In short, part of what freedom requires of Cormac is to be responsible to the form of life that he's been thrown into. For example, if Cormac were to justify and not just piggyback on the justification of others, his decision to marry in terms of, say, his Roman Catholicism, he would need to grasp the goods of Catholicism, uh, uh, the need to grasp what goods of Catholicism, what goods Catholicism takes to be inherited to marriage. And his marrying this particular woman would have to be appropriately connected to those goods so as to plausibly bring them about, and he would need to be acquainted with this connection. Using the term loosely, we might think of this con condition of freedom as a sort of syntactical responsibility, as it requires the explicit grasp of formal and material logical relations between the sorts of actions available and the justifying goods. The free person makes valid moves in the logical space of, the of their form of life. You might then think of the second condition as a sort of semantic responsibility. Here, Cormac is not just responsible to his way of life, but he's responsible to the world as it really stands. That is, if a proposed set of goods is to justify Cormac's decision to marry, then those goods must be merely proposed as good, uh, must not, but must not be merely proposed as good, but they must really be good. The logical space of reasons is not solely constituted by trivial formal relations, but more importantly by empirically conditioned relations of material logic, which are themselves sensitive to pushback from the real world. A justification for acting in terms of a merely apparent good is not a justification for acting, but self-harm. Long-term, maybe irreversible delusions about what actually constitutes our good is how Aristotle defines the very notion of vice. And he sees as tantamount to the self-destruction uh, in its most extreme forms, it's a sort of drunkenness. Thus, we're not only responsible to our form of life, but responsible for it. A free being checks her inherited understanding of the good against the real world. 
A cult is not a form of life, and therefore a free person cannot shirk ultimate semantic responsibility. If you think of the first two conditions uh, for freedom as demands for responsibility to others, the free person responsible to, to others from whom she has inherited her way of life and with whom she shares the world, we should think of the third as a demand for responsibility to oneself, a kind of authenticity. Maybe Cormac's particular decision to marry might instantiate the appropriate connection between the goods prescribed by his Roman Catholic way of life, and that way of life may constitute an actual way of human flourishing. Nevertheless, uh, that could all be co coincidental to what Cormac is honestly up to, because those goods are not what really motivate him. Though Cormac's decision to marry could be justified by bona fide goods of human unity, uh, family, and salvation, he might deep down, as it were, really be motivated by lust, status, money, or what have you. Uh, in the latter case, Cormac would be responsible to and for his way of life only accidentally, which is to say he is not acting responsibly at all. Cormac's actions in such a case were justifiable in terms of his form of life. Uh, he would, if they were, he would be merely lucky. And the movement from being lucky to being ethically responsible is the very mark of freedom. Once again, if we are sympathetic to Aristotle on this point, it's not just Cormac's freedom, but also his happiness that's at stake. We do not raise our children so they might be accidentally good, but to be good on purpose. Maybe we begin uh, the process by educating someone into a way of life by motivating them with external goods just to get things off the ground. For example, one might need to entice a child towards responsibility with rewards and punishments in the way one might bribe her to learn chess with candy, but mature practical mastery requires that one, to some high degree at least, be motivated by the goods internal to that way of living. Thus, whereas the first two conditions require that the free person can make explicit the connection between her actions and the goods constitutive of her form of life uh, the ver uh, and the vertical connection between the latter and the world, the third condition requires that she can bring her own true motives to explicit transparency. Her satisfaction of the first two conditions is not merely an act of bad faith. Okay, in light of this, we can see the threefold responsibility conditions for freedom entail a corresponding threefold set of knowledge conditions. That is, freedom requires knowledge of one way, one's way of life, uh, one must have knowledge of the world to judge that way of life, and one, one ha must have self-knowledge, knowledge of oneself. One must know whether one really is committed to this way of life. Thus, freedom follows on responsibility, but responsibility only follows on knowledge. Or as I put it earlier, we achieve our freedom inasmuch as if we have realized a threefold wisdom, knowing our way of life, knowing the world, and knowing ourselves. We can also see that the great threat to our freedom is not the impingement of efficient causes, whether that uh, threat is provided by a deterministic universal mechanism or merely the fact that our neurophysiology may do the work we mistakenly credit to our conscious will. But ignorance, that is the real threat. Indeed, Aristotle puts ignorance among uh, the most insidious threats to voluntary action on par with the force of external causes. If freedom is wisdom, then bondage is ignorance. Our freedom is undermined when we do not know what we are doing. We do not know whether what we are doing is actually a good idea, or we do not really know why we are doing what we are doing. Whatever might obscure our vision in these matters subverts our freedom. In other words, uh, given the three wisdom conditions for freedom, we can see that we are threatened by a threefold ignorance. We fail to grasp the goods proposed to us by our grounding traditions and histories, which is the failure of education. Uh, we can have the misfortune of being thrown into a tradition along with its biological grounding 
with a flawed epistemic relationship to the world, and we could fail to be transparent to ourselves. We can fail to put our own motives under rational scrutiny. This triple threat of obliviousness, obliviousness is what should worry us about freedom, not whether or not our brain does our deciding. Thank you. You seem to be critiquing the idea that explains all actions, mm -hmm. perhaps I misunderstood. I think you were saying that yeah. complex actions have a, a, a distinction between like- Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm saying is, is, is I, I, I think the experiments, and actually if you like listen to what Leibitz said, he was like very careful about what they showed. I think other people have done things with them that I don't think he intended to, right? I think they show exactly what they're purported to show by the scientists doing them. It's like when we are asked to make arbitrary decisions, it looks like we're not in control of that. Did you see that? Okay. I just don't think that really amounts to anything of real importance to our self-understanding when we take seriously what we're, what we're doing when we make decisions that matter to us. Because I think those kinds of decisions are so radically different. Did you see that? Yeah. yeah. I'm asking yeah. you to be able to demonstrate through a test that yeah. those decisions are meaningfully different. I understand the yeah. self-perception, but whether or not it's actually backed up. Yeah, I don't, I don't, and this is the problem, right, mm -hmm. is I don't know what it would be like to test that even. Mm -hmm. you, see, you see what I mean? Because I, I think it, what it, the idea is is that a meaningful notion of freedom is exercised in this other arena, right? That it's all wrapped up with all these influences outside of me and influences inside of me, right? Um, that it's not a single discrete event that you're going to be able to like test for. Mm -hmm. You see that? So basically what I'm, what I'm saying is, is I don't think human freedom is the sort of thing that we can have a completed theory of. I see. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. Can you explain uh, a little bit how, about like compatibilism and how that pertains to what you're saying? Yeah. So I mean, this is probably the frustrating part of this, is, is uh, the way I think of, of something like compatibilism, it's falling into the absolute wrong way to think about our actions, right? Because like, like what a compatibilist is saying is they're, they're worried about whether or not there is or is not a prior chain of causes le leading up to my decision, right? And, and saying, well, it's okay if that chain of causes is deterministic or something like that, okay? But my point is, is that is to think absolutely the wrong way about our ethically significant actions, right? Like, I don't think when we're training people, like our children, our colleagues, what have you, to make good decisions, that we're really worried about them managing the causal chains leading up to their deciding, right? We're, what we're worried about are the kinds of goods they're acting by. You see that? So for what I'm trying to argue, it, does, I don't, it doesn't matter if libertarianism is true. It doesn't matter if compatibilism is true. It doesn't matter if hard determinism is true. What I'm saying is that whole debate is missing the point. And I think it's, it's leading us to like, at least, you know, I mean, we could overestimate how influential this is, okay, right? But like, it's leading us to really, really mischaracterize and misunderstand like what's at stake, right? And what's really important in our decision-making. Yeah, yeah. So along with that, um, you, would you say that, um, so it doesn't matter the chain leading to our decision, it's mm -hmm. ultimately what the decision is. 
what matters is whether or not the decision was made for the right kind of good, right? So the motivation behind the specific decision. If it's good or bad. And the causal chain leading up to that is not the important part. Yeah. If that's your really yeah. missing the point without the beginning. Because you know when you when you um, you know it, when you're raising a child, you are really whether or not you're in a compatibilist or a libertarian or a hard determinist universe doesn't matter. You're going to attempt to get your child to pursue the right kinds of goods. Like that's what's gonna matter, you see what I mean? And you're gonna spend a lot of time standing in for them, right? Having them piggyback on your reasons until you can turn them loose, right? Do you see that? But all of that, is, you, there's, you're not going to spend a lot of time training their free will. You're gonna mostly be spending a lot of time training their mind to pick out the right kind of good, right? You see what I mean? And that's what, and, 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 what, and that's how you like conduct yourself and you're helping your friends, that's how you conduct yourself, it's all these things. And, and so I think the whole free will debate, the way it's conducted in contemporary philosophy, turns our attention away from what's actually important, what we want out of responsibility, what we want out of agency, which is that we become good pursuers of goods, right? Not that we are able to exercise our will in some kind of causal vacuum. You see that? And maybe that's a possibility, I just don't care, right? Yeah. So would you say you give like weight to the deliberation before a decision though? Like, so not the prior chain of events, but let's say um, someone finds you know, a $50 bill on the ground, they know they can fill out someone's pocket. And so let's say they deliberately know like, oh, it's wrong, but I'm still gonna take it. And let's say they just off of a whim, they're like, I'm just gonna keep it. I don't think about that much. Would you put weight on the deliberation before that? Like, well, I guess it's more from a moral philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, it, here's, I mean, and I'm, this is my snotty answer to your like fair question, right? Okay, is um, I think, like how often do we have to make decisions like that? Very rarely actually, okay? Do you, and I would even say some of the most momentous decisions you make are not like that. This A or B, stark, I've got to decide in like in the next two minutes what to do. Very rare indeed. But what, what we do in our philosophy classrooms now is we teach people about agency by looking at like trolley problems and like should I pick up the $50 bills off, off the floor or something like that. You know. And, and really, if you think of it, that's just tough cases making bad law. And I would rather return, like, do a phenomenology of how we actually do live good lives, right, when we think we are, right, and how we actually do make decisions, right, uh, when we think we're doing that and, and move from there. And I think if you look at that, whether it's a free will debate or, like, like typically, like, you know, contemporary moral philosophy has very little to do with, like, actual human lives. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.